How about Shani last week? Preaching, huh? So good. Did such a great job. Vanessa is not here tonight. She's over at the Suffolk campus uh, preaching over there on the south side, and so she's going to be disappointed because it is Ryan House's first service here. Come on. I know. Chris and Shanika's little girl who already has more hair than I've ever had in my entire life, so I'm a little bitter. It's not fair. So uh, it was just great even just seeing Shanika down at the altar with Ryan just tonight during the worship service. And so uh, it's good to have you with us. And it's good to be out of the house too, isn't it? I know. Come on. Come on. Hey, so let me, let me just stretch your imagination a little bit tonight as we get started. I, I want you to imagine that Christianity has not been started. That, that Jesus actually came three years ago. Now, who knows what the dominant religion would be in the world over the last 2,000 years? Let's say, for example, Judaism maintained its place of dominance in the world as it was in many respects for the worship of the one true God when Jesus came. So let's just assume for a moment that Jesus just came, didn't come 2,000 years ago, just came three, three years ago. And the whole world is turned upside down by this man that's doing these incredible things, raising people from the dead, demonstrating power over every manner of nature, and that all the religious leaders and powers that be were so threatened by him that just like 2,000 years ago, it happened now that they conspired for his death. And let's assume that his trial has happened, he's been killed by a means of capital punishment, and we're here tonight gathered because we have decided to be a part of a new movement that's not even been named Christianity yet. It's just called the way. Now, how would Jesus have been killed? Maybe the electric chair? What if his death sentence had been through a chair that channeled electricity through his body so that that it destroyed his physical body. Who here is going to sign up to be a part of a religious movement that has the electric chair as its religious symbol? Right? Who's picking that? When you're talking to your friends about this new religion that you're going to be a part of and you've got this necklace that you're you're wearing or this symbol that you've carved out of your pocket, people say, what's that? It's an electric chair. What's that for? It's the new religion that I'm going to be here. I'd like to talk to you about it. How long do you think that conversation is going to last? What What if he was killed through lethal injection? And what if that became the symbol of your new religious movement that you were devoting your life to? What if it was a hangman's noose? Who wants to be a part of a religious movement that chooses a noose as its symbol of hope and salvation? Now, I'm French. I'm partial to a guillotine. All right? I'm just saying. But I'm not sure I want to be a part of a religious movement that has that as its central theme for eternal life. I think sometimes we forget because we have the benefit of 2,000 years of history of how odd it was for the cross to become a source of hope. 
We have 2,000 years of history, so we've been desensitized to the impact that when Christianity was just getting started and they're looking for the symbol that they're going to rally behind, it becomes the cross, an instrument of death. The cross was such a brutal way for death that if you were a Roman citizen, it was actually against the law for you to be put to death. If you were a Roman citizen and you were sentenced to death because of some egregious crime that you committed, you could not be put to death through the cross because it was such a brutal way to die. You die on a cross not because they nail you to that tree. You die on a cross because eventually your body fatigues and you can't pull yourself up to breathe. The cross is so brutal and how you die because you die through suffocation. At some point, your body fatigues and you lose the strength that you need to pull up to take a breath. In the Roman world, it was the way that they would kill their worst enemy. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and it is the symbol that we bring to the world for hope. I want to talk to you tonight about one of the central messages that we find in the cross of Christ. I'm calling it, I'm calling it directional living. M- much of this message was what I had been planning for months as we were moving into Easter. And, and as I began to study the, the story of Emmaus, that's such a central part of the Easter narrative, I just began to found so much more in there. So this is really Easter part three or Emmaus part three, right? We talked so much about Emmaus for Easter and then we followed up with a, another uh, exposition of the whole story of Luke 24 and now we're coming back again. And what we're gonna find is that here through the prophetic imagery of this city, we find one of the central themes of the cross itself. Now the cross represents a death that Jesus died for you and for me. We understand that. In Colossians 1.20 it says, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 says he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Here it is, by his wounds you are healed. If you've never had the opportunity to read through Psalm 22, you should read through that chapter in the Bible. If you've not read through it, after you get through it, you're going to think that Psalm 22 had to have been written after Jesus' death because of the precision of the prophetic imagery that we have there. It even speaks to people gambling for Christ's clothes. Psalm 22, speaking of the cross of Christ and the death that he would die for you and for me. But the cross isn't just a representation to us about what Jesus did for us. It's a representation for what he expects of you and I. The cross doesn't just speak to Jesus' death. It speaks to the death that he invites us to every day. Look at Galatians 2.20. It says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How about Matthew 10, 38 to 39? says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life, you will find it. The cross is not just for the death of Christ, it's for the death of you and I. 
1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know what is the very power of God. What is Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the irony of the cross being the central theme of hope and salvation for this new movement that would one day be called Christianity. He understood the world would look at it and say, how can life come through death? And then we come to Matthew 16, 24. This is going to be out of the New American Standard. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, talking about the direction of their life, if you're going to come my way, he's saying, he must deny himself, she must deny herself. Listen to what he says, and take up his cross and follow me. For so many times, I think for us as Christians, we see this message of the cross and the death that we have to die as one of desire. And we're going to talk about it tonight. And this is a central part of the message of the cross. But I think when Jesus here, 2,000 years ago, was talking to the disciples and talking to us there in Matthew 16, he was saying to you and to me that this idea of the cross is more about the direction of your life than it is about the desires of your life. And if you get the direction of your life going in the proper direction, then all of a sudden I think that you're going to find the desires begin to take care of themselves. Dying to self, taking up your cross, being crucified with Christ is less about the death of desires and more about directional living. When my life is continually moving towards the plans of God, desires that are contrary to the ways of God begin to die. All right, let's look at Luke 24. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there. Luke 24, 13 to 24. Luke 24, 13 to 24. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus. So let's just put you in the moment of the story, right? It's Sunday here in the story. Friday was Jesus' death. He's in the grave. He's resurrected on Sunday morning. The resurrection is already happening. And now here, two of Jesus' followers, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're making their way to this city, this town called Emmaus. It says it's seven miles from Jerusalem, and there's some commentary, which we're going to talk a little bit tonight, whether or not that language has been misunderstood a little bit, which misleads us to where maybe the actual city of Emmaus would be today. It says as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things, it says Jesus himself suddenly came and began to walk with him. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their face. And then one of them named Cleopas replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened just three days ago. Three days ago, meaning the start of his journey, right? The Last Supper Thursday and then his arrest and crucifixion on Friday. 
Listen to what they said. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with the most amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. They've got all the facts here, right? We preached on this just a couple of weeks ago. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone just as the women had said. It's not as though they're on their way to Emmaus because they didn't know what had happened. It's not as though they're leaving Jerusalem because word had not yet gotten to them that Jesus' body is missing from the tomb. It's not as though they're on the way to Emmaus because they didn't know that angels had appeared and made proclamations and now there's this stirring amongst the disciples and now they're beginning to remember everything that Jesus had said. They began to recall and remember that Jesus had himself said that he would be killed and that he would be raised on the third day. They knew it all and yet they were still on their way to Emmaus. So we'd like a little participation here at the City Life Church. So what's the very first show that you ever succumbed to Ben watching? Anybody? First show you've ever succumbed to Ben watching, right? You just watched it over. You couldn't stop. Binge watching. Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. Somebody else. <laughs> Don't judge. Don't judge. All right. Andy? The Office. All right. Somebody else? Big Bang Theory, somebody else, first show you ever binge watched. Don't be acting like you don't binge watch shows. Oh, we don't binge watch shows, Pastor. That's, that's somebody else. Duck Dynasty. Duck Dynasty, come on, I know. I know, and he's a big country music fan. I, I know, see, surprise, you learn about people. Prison Break. Prison break. Switch Step Birth. Switch step birth. Psych. 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 Tara? Grey's Anatomy. What is that? That's that animation stuff, isn't it? But I'm not judging. I'm not judging. All right, maybe I'm judging a little bit. <laughs> Sean. Breaking Bad. Stranger Things. All the way in the back. CIS? NCIS? 24? Caesar Milan. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first 48, I know, nobody's, mine was lost. Nobody did lost? Where you download the whole season and watch it over and over? Yeah, I know, I know. That Vanessa and I got caught up in that, staying up till three in the morning, watching lost. No daredevil? Where are all my daredevil people? No? I'm disappointed in you, David Godwin, come on. All right. Oh, it wasn't your first. All right, there you go, fair enough. Fair enough, fair enough. Daredevil is one, Stranger Things, we're big Stranger Things fans, I know. I know. Binge watching is a phenomenon because it tapped in to this feeling that you and I have of we've got to know how it's going to turn out, right? And the only reason we didn't binge watch when I was growing up because we had something called the VCR, right? I know, it pain, it's painful, if you wanted to watch a show that you were going to miss, you had to put this tape in this box, and God forbid that the electricity would blink and reset the timer on the VCR. Terrible. Then you got to wait for the reruns. But then all of a sudden, praise the Lord, technology came and has delivered us from waiting. I know. 
You and I, there's something inside of us that we are wired to, we want to know how it's going to turn out. And can we just agree, people have always been that way. People have always been that way. So when I read the Easter story, can I just tell you, I'm judging a little bit. Because the question I'm asking is of Cleopas, and who we don't know the name of the other disciple that was with him, was that what on earth were you doing leaving when by clearly, by the telling of your own story, you had not yet figured out how it was going to turn out? Don't you think that something inside of them, it doesn't say, it doesn't say, that they were new to who Jesus was. It doesn't say that they were an outsider and didn't understand his teachings. It calls them disciples. It, it says that they were his followers. How is it that on that morning, they find themselves moving in the opposite direction of Jerusalem? How is it on that morning that they find themselves moving towards Emmaus when history is unfolding and Jesus himself had foretold many of the things that were going to happen, but yet here they are walking in the opposite direction of God. I'm going to throw a map up here. Now, don't get nervous. We're not going to geek out on too much geography, although me and maybe two other people would enjoy that. So I'm going to, I'm going to exercise some self-control here, but just bear with me, all right? So all of these that you see with question marks are the leading candidates for where Emmaus might have been. We don't know for certain. There's the whole controversy of the seven miles and what did that mean in the original language, but one of the leading candidates and of the research that I've done, I'm of the camp too that believes it's Emmaus Nicopolis that's right over here on the far left, especially because it sounds a little supermanish. I'm just going to go ahead and say, right? But, but, but this here, so there's lots of options, but the, the leading candidate is way here to the far left, that that would have been the modern day Emmaus. So here you've got this picture of Cleopas and his friend. They're walking on this road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them. All right, give me the next slide. Now let's zoom out a little bit. Here you've got Jerusalem again. You've got Emmaus, and I'm pulling this slide in. You can't see it all the way, but the ancient city of Sodom and Gomorrah is down here at the bottom of the Dead Sea. Now we believe that all of the Bible is instructive to us. And I believe that even the geography of the Bible creates for us prophetic imagery that God intends to teach us things about life. Everything about the story of Scripture is rich for insight that he wants to show to you and me about how we're supposed to live. And the next slide that's going to pop up in just a minute is if you take the geography of Emmaus and Jerusalem and Sodom and Gomorrah, I believe that you get a picture of the cross of Christ as it speaks to the death that you and I are supposed to die. All right, give me that next slide. Now stay with me for a minute. Jerusalem is a prophetic picture of the best of everything that God has for you. 
It's the story of the death and the resurrection of Christ, the birth of Christianity, his proclamation in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure. Jerusalem represents, as it did in the Old Testament, this idea of Zion, this idea in the Old Testament was God's best. That doesn't change for us. There's still this powerful picture of God and him drawing us to himself and that God's ways are best for us, but not just his ways. I would argue his plans. For too many of us, our conversation about Christianity is only ever about the ways of God in respect to morality. For too many of us, we've pigeonholed the conversation of Christianity about do's and don'ts. Now, do's and don'ts are a part of Christianity. Do's and don'ts are a part of Christianity here at the City Life Church. We do a lot of teaching on do's and don'ts, we do a lot of teaching on morality. We talk about the three ways that the Bible speaks of sin, of issues of morality and the matters of conscience and then foregoing liberties. That's another sermon for another time, but we teach extensively about this scale right here, about the ways of people contrasted with the ways of God. Maybe you could talk about that as desires. Right? This is part of the human condition. This is what Galatians 5 talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8 about how there's something at war inside of us with the Spirit of God, the desires of the Spirit of God, and the desire of my humanity, and we're caught in this place of struggle. But if this is the only way that you ever view Christianity, then I would argue that you are susceptible to one of the devil's greatest temptations, and it is the marginalization of your purpose. It's the marginalization of your purpose. If you only ever think of your Christianity and being a devoted follower of Christ and the death that you need to die is not doing the things that you're not supposed to do and and doing the good things that you are supposed to do, you miss out on one of the, I would argue, the biggest parts of your Christian journey, which is one of the reasons I believe Emmaus was put in the Easter narrative to begin with. I think, think about all the things that God could have put in the Easter story. Think about everything that was happening the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. Think about all the people that were affected by it, talking about it. All the things that the Holy Spirit could have said, this is the one that we're going to put in the Easter story. He picks the story of these two people on their way to Emmaus. Why is that? I think it's because he's trying to help us see something. I think he's trying to help us see that for most Christians, this is what they struggle with more than anything else. Can I just say that I think most of you in here You're not waking up tomorrow wrestling with whether or not you're going to abandon everything that you know about Christianity and become the modern day story of the prodigal son and just give yourself to riotous living. There might be some people in here that are struggling with that, but that's not most of you. It's not most of you. I know because I know most of you. Do we all have struggles of desire? Yes. Do we all have these struggles with the ways of man and the ways of God? Sure we do, but for most of you, The thing that you struggle with the most are the plans of God. And I think we struggle with them the most because we don't even think of them within the context of Christianity and that's how the enemy gets a foothold in our lives with these things. I think the devil knows that most of you are not susceptible to a return to the prophetic imagery of Sodom and Gomorrah which is a complete and absolute giving yourself over to human desire. Complete and total hedonism. But I think what he does know is that you and I have a hard time dying to self when it comes to the purposes and the plans of everyday living. And he wants to get us trapped in what I'm going to call the Emmaus zone, 
which is viewing Christianity here and not understanding that the majority of your Christian existence and the decisions that you make that your Christianity is supposed to overlay is this thing on the top. Give me the next slide there. Your vocation, your home, your finances, your marriage, your family, the church that you decide to go to, the way that you serve the kingdom. For so many of us, we think, we think these are decisions that God leaves up to me. Or worse yet, that these are decisions at the end of the day, really God doesn't have that much of an interest in. Does he care about these things? Sure. Do we pray about these things? Sure. But the que- this is the question. Do you assign your understanding of Christianity to this scale as much as you do that scale? Do you view God's will for your life for these things just as powerfully as you do those things? I've been doing pastoral ministry for almost 20 years, and I will tell you this. People that I talk to that have a ways problem, more often than not, it's because they have a plans problem. And the people that devote themselves to understanding that God has a will and a purpose for every plan of my life, that people that begin to move in that direction out of Emmaus into Jerusalem, that oftentimes, not always, but more often than not, your desire problem begins to take care of itself. Something happens in your heart and in my heart when the cross of Christ is overlaid over the plans and the purposes of my life. When I'm willing to die to myself for this list, something inside of me begins to die to self for this list over here. God has a will for the plan that he has for you in every area of your life. Your vocation, God has a plan for your vocation. He's got a plan for why he puts you on this earth. The, ch- the, church, the church is responsible for a lot of this misunderstanding because the church, for out of its own ego, ministers out of their own sense of ego, that, that they, they want to, the, to people to believe that their calling is something that's more sacred than, than the typical person, and that's not true, and it's unfortunate that people think that way. The work that I do is no less important and no more important than the work that you do. Whether you're called to do custodial work, whether you're called to the boardroom, whether you're called to be a missionary in China or the student ministries pastor, lead pastor of this church, if that's God's plan and purpose for your life, then it's God's work, it's God's calling, and it's ministry. God created you to do something in this world that he didn't create anybody else to do. He created you with a God-given purpose and a God-given destiny. And your vocation should be a conversation with God about, God, why did you put me on this earth and what do you want me to do? Now, granted, sometimes in life, you've got to do what's in front of you because you've got to provide for your family. I get that. I'm not saying that you should all go tomorrow uh, on Monday and put in your two weeks notice at your job. I'm not saying do that. But I am saying that you should be open to a conversation with God and that's where that conversation might take you. And then you've got to exercise judgment and discernment and wisdom and wise counsel for how you can begin a journey that begins to transition you into the vocation that God has called you to do. The job that you do, you do it to the best of your ability. You work hard. Be faithful to the task that's been put into your hand. I'm telling you, that's ministry. And it honors God. He's got a plan for where he wants you to live. He does. 
Our first call is to a real estate agent. It should be your second call. Your first call should be in a place of prayer. God, where do you want me to live? He's got a, he wants you to be in a certain place. You might say, well, Fred, it sounds like you're over-spiritualizing the simple decisions of life. And what I would say to you is that's part of the problem. He's got a place that he wants you to live because he's got people that you're supposed to interact with. There's people that you're supposed to meet, the people that he wants to put beside you. When the house goes up for sale next to you and then the people that move in and you're thinking, good God, why did those people move in? And God says, because you're supposed to help them. Yeah? When we find ourselves in situations and circumstances that are beyond our control, that's when it's the easiest because then you just rely on the sovereignty of God. If you're in the military, you might say, well, friend, my vocation, I don't have any say in that. I know, I get it. But that means God gets all the say and he's taken it out of your hands so you can't even mess it up. <laughs> right? Modern day military life is casting lots. Yeah, it is. When you read in the, in, in the, in, in the, in, in the Old and the New Testament, right? They cast lots to figure out who the 12th disciple was going to be. Who does that? Can you imagine I go away and then you all as a church decide we've got to choose a new pastor and the elders of the church says we're going to roll some dice to decide between these two. You're like, what? You might as well just go be a part of the religion that has a symbol of the electric chair. And we're not supposed to do that with modern day living, but we're supposed to approach the decision in the same way, which is that God has a will and he wants that will to be expressed through the choice that I make. He's got a will for you. I remember it was probably in 2004. We had been living in the inner city. I'd been there for 10 years. Again, that's another story for another time. Uh, but I was uh, working then on staff at a church just outside of Richmond in Mechanicsville. And I was coming out of the bank drive through And I was pulling out onto the street. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Fred, take a left. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Take a left. It's like, I know, but the way back to church is to the right. Take a left. So I took a left. Then I took another left, and I found myself in this cul-de-sac, and there was a house in front of me with a for sale sign on it, and I felt like God spoke to me, you're supposed to move to this neighborhood. It's like, no, God, no, our whole life is about urban ministry and urban revitalization. We've, we've, I've been there for 10 years, and God's saying, it's time to move. I want you to live in the community where you pastor. I remember calling Vanessa. She was like, That's crazy. It's just crazy. This is our whole life, right? She gave me the speech. I know. I said, I just gave that same speech to God. You give it to him and see if you can get through to him. I don't know. Not even Vanessa could get through to God, right? So we started having this conversation. We reached out to people that we trust, right? We did, right? This is part of making a decision. We begin to talk to people that we trusted, who we knew could. We begin to tell them the story, and they begin to pray with us, and we begin to fast, and we begin to discern God's will, and then we, were, we, we moved on this house, and then all of a sudden it fell through, and we're like, God, I thought you were the one that was telling us to do this, and there was a house around the corner that was twice as big that, that also had a for sale sign. I remember riding by it and saying, one day we're going to be able to do a house like that, and God was saying, why don't you try to do that now? And we're like, because I signed in our budget, and God said, come on, are you going to believe me for the impossible or not? And that ended up being the house that we were in for the next three years. Another sermon for another time of how that story played out. But we made a move into that neighborhood because we lived under this idea that God has a will for where I'm supposed to live. 
And the same that he has a will for me when it comes to issues of morality, he has a will for me for every area of my life. And dying here is just as important as dying there and vice versa. This is part of what it means to be on the cross. This is the concept of directional living. I'm not saying that it's always easy. That's why it's called a cross. Because so many times my desire is such that, that it's what I value and it's what I long for and it's what I've bought into. And when God begins to call me something that's different, that's part of the nature of what it means to die to self is that you've got to be willing to lay that down and trust Ephesians 3.20 that what he has for us is always exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. He always has our best interest at heart. For some of you, you've been making decisions about where you're going to live, and the thought of inviting God into that conversation hasn't even come in. What I would say to you is don't make that mistake. Let God be a part of your conversation about where God's got lots of ideas about your finances. He's got lots of ideas about who you're supposed to marry. One of the biggest mistakes that we see people make is that because they're tired of being alone, And they think that marriage is going to satisfy that, and they're just trading one problem for many more. Something inside of you has got to believe that God knows exactly who you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with. And what I'm saying to you is you got to wait for that person. I made a decision to uh, be, be a devoted follower of Christ, a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990. I was 23 years old, and I had lived an ugly life even though I was raised in a Christian family, lived an ugly life. And one of the first things that I knew that I needed to do when I made a vow of devotion to Christ is that for 12 months, for 12 months, that even the thought of dating someone needed to be out of of the question. For lots of reasons, but for one of them is because I had spiritual leaders in my life teaching me about stuff like this. Because every other time in my life when I had made a decision about dating someone, it had always been my decision. And I knew that I needed to fast that for an entire year so that I could learn what it would be like for God to be the one that decides whether or not I get to pursue that person romantically. So of course, right, after a year, I was like, okay, God, line them up, right? Line them up, I'm ready, 24. You can pick them, just go ahead, right? Six years later. If you're a young adult and you're not married, don't come to me for counsel unless you've waited until at least you're 30 because I got no compassion for you. (laughs) My counsel to you is he made me wait. Welcome to it. But I got to wait for Vanessa, the love of my life. Right? Come on. God has a plan for who you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with. You got to treat it like you treat sin in the sense that God has a very specific answer to you. When it comes to these issues of morality, you, you aren't saying, I don't know, maybe God says it. No, we're like, no, 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 God says that's wrong, don't do it. Or when it comes to things that you're supposed to do, like prayer and reading school, which you're gonna get to, these idea of the pathways, when you look at that, you don't have to ask yourself, I wonder if it's really God's will for me to read the Bible, right? You don't wrestle with that. You might wrestle with whether or not you read it, but you don't wrestle with it whether or not it's his will. You've got to view this list that same way. God has a specific will for all of these things, and the nature of God is to reveal it, is not to hide. Is directional living the way that you live? Are you willing to lay down your life for a list just like this? 
How many kids you're supposed to have? Church you're supposed to go to? How you're going to serve through volunteerism in the world? God's got a will for you in every one of those areas. This list isn't his, his list, and that list, your list. It's all God's list. And that's the power of the prophetic imagery of Emmaus, is that these two men, because they were disappointed in Jesus' death, weren't off to some riotous party, and they were just giving themselves over to hedonism. The inference that we take is that they were on their way to resume whatever their normal life was. Sunday was the first day of the week for the Jewish calendar. It was our Monday. And that's why they were on their way back to Emmaus. Because they were just going back to what they had thought they were supposed to do with their life. And Jesus intersects them on that place and says, hey, you got to understand that the direction of your life, not just with regards to your morality, with the ways of God, but with the plans of God, you've got to bring them into submission of him. Let's look at Matthew 16, 24 again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's a reason that Jesus concludes this verse talking about direction. It's because he wants you and I to understand that the direction of your life requires you to die to self. It requires you to lay your hopes and dreams and desires at the feet of the cross and trust that God has your best interest at heart. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come back up. Katie, you can just go back to the original slide. Directional living isn't about going to heaven or hell. It's not. That's about Jesus' death. This death that we're talking about, it's not about whether or not you get to that heaven, it's about whether or not you're gonna bring heaven to earth. Directional living is not about heaven or hell. That's the gospel. It's that Jesus died a death that you and I could not die ourselves so that we could be reconciled to God. If we make a vow of devotion to Christ, we're forgiven, we find his grace, we find his mercy, and we have the hope of heaven forever. But this idea of directional living, this idea of directional living, this is about whether or not you're going to experience the abundance of life that Jesus wants you to have. Dying to self, taking up your cross, being crucified with Christ is less about the death of desire and more about directional living. And when my life is continually moving toward the plans of God, the desires that are contrary to the ways of God begin to die. So you might be here now, and we're going to pick up this conversation more next week. And you might say, well, Fred, I, I appreciate a lot of what you're saying, but this idea of, of talking to God, it's hard. He's not here in a physical form. I don't hear his voice. I've never heard his voice audibly. That's why I always refer to it as feeling his voice. And what I would say to you is, if you have a hard time hearing from God, it's not about listening harder. It's about positioning your life better. It's about positioning your life better. 
There's a little book that the people in the blue shirt have access to in the back. It's, it's, it's called Praxis. It's this little green booklet. and They've got plenty back there, and if they run out, we've got boxes of them. But if, 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 if you're new to this church and you've never gotten one of those books, we give it away for free because in that talks about our model of discipleship. And last year, we did, for an entire year, we did a series on it. But at the middle of that discipleship model, it talks about 12 pathways, and many people think of them as spiritual disciplines, and we don't call them spiritual disciplines, even though they are, because we like to name them what they do for us. They're pathways because they position us well for many reasons, but one is that it puts you on the road walking with Christ. When you give your life to these 12 pathways, scripture and prayer and fasting and service and accountability and gathering and reaching and that list of 12, it's, it's not a buffet. You don't pick the ones that you think that you're, you're supposed to do all 12. You can't start by doing all 12. The booklet helps you get started with that. But at some point, you want your life to get to a place where those 12 things are at the center of your Christian experience because it keeps you on the road that Christ is walking on so you can hear his voice. Not just for the sin that you've got to stop and the righteousness that you've got to pick up, but for this other list called the plans of God, the purposes that he has for your life. He wants to talk to you just like he talked to Cleopas and his friend. He wants to get you out of the Maya zone and get you moving back to Jerusalem, living God's best in every area of your life. Stand with me. Father, as we step back into this place of worship, for maybe people that are here tonight and they've only thought of their Christianity in the realm of morality, that even now that you would begin to speak to them maybe about decisions that they're making on this other list. And then they would resolve in their heart tonight that they're not going to allow their purpose and their destiny to be marginalized. They're not gonna succumb to the temptation of the enemy that they're gonna take control of those choices. But they're gonna lay those things at your feet just like they do other things that are moral issues for them. That they're gonna be willing to die to self and to embrace your plan, trusting that you always have our best interest at heart. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.